Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. In every war, there are conflicting reports, propaganda, mistaken assessments of adversaries' strengths or weaknesses, competing agendas, of course, uh, war profiteering, blunders, leaders trying desperately to hold on to power against rival factions. The Russian-Ukraine war seems to top the charts in all these things, plus, plus a lot of others I didn't mention. Uh, I try to follow events somewhat closely, but in this case, it seems impossible for the ordinary observer to figure out what's going on. Um, but what does seem clear is that uh, looming on the horizon is the very real possibility of a nuclear war, nuclear war as more and more countries are drawn in. And, and just this week, the German foreign minister, uh, um, Annalena Baerbach seemed to state bluntly that Western allies are indeed fighting a war against Russia. Uh, to learn what we should be thinking about Russia, Ukraine, and where it's heading, I've, I've asked my increasingly frequent guest, Dr. Stephen Bryan, a senior fellow at Se uh, Center for Security Policy in the Yorktown Institute, to explain. Um, Stephen has over 50 years of national secure, security experience with a, with a long resume that includes serving as senior staff director of the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee and, and several stints in the Pentagon, where he was known as the Yoda of the arms trade. <laughs> uh, we're also joined by, by David P. Goldman, thrilled, uh, Spingler columnist and deputy editor for the Asia Times and PJ Media. It's president of Macro Strategy and Washington Fellow at the Claremont Institute. David has vast subject matter expertise in international affairs and security matters. Um, Stephen and David, let's start with this. Uh, Stephen, you wrote a piece this week titled, All is Not Well for Ukraine. Uh, and, you, and you set off sort of a, a firestorm of comments and replies and debate. Uh, why don't you go ahead and explain? We'll get started there. And then Stephen or David, if you'll join in, if you two can talk with each other on this topic, I'm sure you're going to think of questions that wouldn't occur to me. Well, I think where I started was that most of the reporting about Ukraine that we're hearing in the West is not very balanced, and it doesn't really tell you what's going on. And it mostly reflects propaganda from the Ukrainian side. And what we're really seeing on the ground is something rather different, that, that the Russians have organized themselves better. They're not geniuses about this, but they're very stubborn and they're very, you know, they're backed up by lots of equipment and lots of troops. And they're beginning to gain ground in the eastern Donbass and the southeastern Donbass more recently in the Zafarisa area. And it's looking more and more that the Ukrainians are taking very heavy casualties, extremely heavy, hundreds a day. Uh, casualties, which they can't sustain. And what I was trying to say is, hey, look out here. You know, just pumping more stuff into Ukraine is not going to change that much the outcome, that it's going south. Uh, and it may be going south faster than we think. And and we should be realistic and understand what's going on and and, and take appropriate action, which in my case, my personal belief 
is diplomatic. So that that's was the that was the thrust. Of, I don't know if David, if I've summarized it correctly, but that's what I was trying to say. No, it was a terrific piece, Steve, and one of the best read uh, uh, contributions to Asian Times uh, for the year. And uh, you made the point, I think, very eloquently that a few dozen tanks are not going to really make uh, any difference in the strategic balance. Uh, in fact, we know that uh, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz's chief of staff, Wolfgang Schmidt, had a shouting match with uh, Lloyd Austin, America's defense secretary, at the Rammstein meeting of NATO ministers a week mm -hmm. ago, in which he said he accused the United States of wanting to make an issue of the tank provision as the thin end of the wedge to provide long-range weapons, which would allow the Ukrainians to hit deep inside Russian territory uh, and, in fact, get us into a war with Russia. Uh, shortly after that, uh, Anna Baerbock, the German foreign minister, as Bill mentioned, stated, we are at war with Russia. Uh, the Russian foreign ministry summoned the German ambassador, demanded an explanation. The Germans said, well, you know, she was misquoted and we're not really a participant in the war. Yeah. Uh, but that kind of thing definitely gets the undivided attention of the Russians. Uh, and I think the question I would ask you, Steve, uh, is assuming that you're correct, that Western military policy in the current configuration is not leading to a successful outcome from the Western side, will uh, NATO countries be desperate enough to give the Ukraine the means to uh, widen the conflict by striking deep inside Russia? And what would be the consequences? Well, I think they won't provide that kind of weaponry. I mean, I think there's real resistance, even in Germany, which has a rather flaky government, in my opinion, compared to the others. Well, they're all pretty flaky, not very good, but but I think the French ran away from it today very clearly. We're not at war with Russia. We don't have any war with Russia. We don't want any part of that. Um, and I think now maybe reality starting to set, set in a little bit in Europe that the next target is not going to be in Ukraine. It's going to, it's going to be in Europe. And, and, and that's what I think starting to get, you know, to, they're all starting to understand that. Uh, and, and, and I think that's been the threat all along that this could spread, that this war could expand. Uh, and Putin's been, you know, I, I don't like Putin very much, but, but he's at least restrained the Russian side to focus just on Ukraine and has not broadened broaden the battle, so to speak. Uh, but I'm sure he's tempted. Uh, I'm sure he is. What do these What do these tanks mean for the uh, the escalation? I you know the, I, everything I know I read on the internet, which of course is absolutely true. But there are images now of of you know, these tanks coming in. They're too too few, too late, too obsolete, and we're sort of setting up what some people call a casserine pass. Uh, in yeah. Ukraine, as these as these tanks are blown up, well, they'll be blown up because uh, the Russians have anti-tank weapons that are capable of blowing them up, and they've already blown up more than ten of the of the German tanks, the Leopards, uh, in Syria and in Iraq. So that we know that they're very vulnerable to those kinds of weapons. So there's no there's no secret sauce here. None of these tanks, including the Abrams, which will be sent in three or four months, because they have to be built. 
none of these tanks have active defenses. They don't have the equivalent of the trophy system that the Israelis have developed. Uh, so basically, they're sitting ducks for uh, capable anti-tank weapons, and, and the Russians have the Cornet anti-tank weapon, tandem warheads. They have all these devices that are tank killers. And the Russians know about getting tanks killed because a lot of theirs, a very large number of theirs, have been destroyed in this war, even with reactive armor and other things, but not with uh, not with uh, active uh, defense systems. So, so I don't think they're game changers. Uh, there aren't enough of them anyway to talk about. Uh, I think this is politics. That's all it is. In fact, uh, David, David was saying about Germany. I know for a fact that the Germans told the the American side. We're not sending any tanks unless you send the Abrams, which is why we ended up putting the Abrams in. And then the Pentagon apparently said, no, you're not taking them out of our stocks. Uh, we can't afford to give them. So then they have to build them. So how do you build tanks in the United States today? You don't because there aren't any tanks in the United States today to build. You take older tanks and you, you fix them up, uh, refurbish them, we call it. Uh, it's a big deal. I mean, but and then you send them. Well, that takes months. So the well, American tanks won't be there till till May, maybe. If either of you, if either you talked with anybody in the administration about what on earth they're thinking, I mean, this seems to be, <laughs> you know, death by incrementalism. Um, you know, one little bad decision after uh, after another. Bill, Bill, I don't understand your question. <laughs> 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 Fair enough. <laughs> uh, they're, they're just digging a hole. It's, 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 it's deeper and deeper. Now, Steve, how, how does this play out? Uh, one way it could play out is that there's a stalemate and a North Korea, South Korea kind of DMZ lined in an armistice where everyone sits behind it and glowers at each other, but doesn't do much while the diplomats uh, push cookies and well, let the, push the thing out for years. Another possibility is there's a serious escalation. How well, do you no, see there, the there, end there's, there, there's another possibility, and that is that Ukrainian government collapses and the, they put in a pro-Russian government of some sort and make a deal. So there, there are different options, there are different possibilities. I don't call them options uh, here. Uh, a lot of that depends on the military situation. There's been a line of contact since before 2014 uh, between the, you know, the Donetsk republics, the Lyansk and Donetsk, uh, and and the and the pro-Russian side, and the Russians were fueling that with arms and supporting their uh, uh, friends there. Now, uh, it, it, so you said before, you said before that you were quite sure that. Uh, the West would not give Ukraine weapons to strike deep inside Russia and uh, widen the conflict. Yeah. Uh, I'm less convinced because I have the sense that uh, people like Tony Blinken, for example, and Victoria Newland are such ideological fanatics that uh, they will take serious risks in order to avoid a humiliating outcome uh, for NATO. Um, With there what? is a what do we have to send? Well, I mean, maybe uh, the longer range high Mars. Um, long range high Mars, the Tacons yeah. and so forth. But yeah, Tacons uh, they're not sending. I mean, at least so far, the Pentagon said no. Yeah. So the Pentagon uh, certainly is uh, 
it displaying a high degree of realism and caution, but I'm not sure that that's the only voice in the administration. Certainly the uniformed military understands what the stakes are and are trying to be responsible, but I'm worried that others in the administration well, Milley, might not uh, be. General Milley this, uh, this week has made some interesting comments that uh, require attention. First of all, he said the casualties on both sides are very high. This is something that Ukrainians keep trying to hide. But saying that, you know, it's not a symmetrical conflict. It's an asymmetrical conflict. The Russian side is much heavier, much bigger, more troops, more capabilities. So in a war of attrition, Ukraine loses. That's what it means. Uh, secondly, he said there was no chance that the Ukrainians could defeat the Russians. That was out of the question for this year. That means all of 2023, which means it's out of the question, period. Um, we can't push them out of where they are. That's what you, General Milley was saying. And he said the only logical approach here is a negotiation. Now, I don't know if he's, he's convinced Lloyd Austin of any of this, um, but you know, at some point, Austin has to pay attention to his Joint Chiefs and he has to understand the military situation and he has to go in front of the president and say, Mr. President, we're losing this one and we better figure another solution because well, this is well, I want to go back to that question that David David said he couldn't hear, which is Victoria and uh, <laughs> Tony Blinken. And, and do they have any, have they articulated any end game here, what our strategic objectives are and, and what, what a victory would look like uh, to them? I haven't seen one. Maybe David has, but I haven't seen it. Uh, one of the most incomprehensible things I've ever read was a David Ignatius interview with uh, Tony Blinken in the Washington Post uh, yesterday or day before. Uh, some people interpret it as Blinken proposing a negotiated solution. I actually couldn't understand a word that was said. Uh, but <laughs> let, let me tell you what scares me about this and scares uh, many people I know in Europe. Let's say Ukraine has long-range rockets. They destroy the Kerch Bridge, which connects Russia to Ukraine. It's a key uh, strategic asset. Russian doctrine has always viewed non-strategic nuclear weapons, say one kiloton nuclear bombs, uh, as accomplishing operational and tactical goals in the context of a conventional war. Here I'm quoting from a new RAND Corporation report uh, on avoiding a long war. Uh, the RAND analysts warn that uh, there are circumstances in which Russia might use some of its very small nuclear weapons in response, for example, to attacks on its territory or perception that it's losing. Uh, I could, for example, see the Russians in response to destruction of and asked like the Kerch Bridge telling the Ukrainians, there's a certain coal-fired power plant, evacuate it because tomorrow we're going to uh, eradicate it and drop a kiloton nuclear weapon on it with about, I don't know, 200 times the ordinance of a caliber, of a Russian caliber cruise missile. That kind of escalation does not strike me as at all impossible and seriously worries me. Maybe I'm being a nervous Nelly Steve, but well, that's, look, that's I mean, the Russians are watching what we do with nuclear weapons, too. Uh, we have shipped in a new generation of gravity, nuclear gravity bombs to Europe just this past week. Uh, and why? Why did we do that? Uh, 
are we anticipating uh, the conflict you're talking about uh, or are we are we promoting it but i think it was ill-advised there was no need to do it um the russians have warned in the past about uh the air defense systems that we've put in Romania and Poland being dual capable, they could also launch nuclear weapons using uh, Tomahawk uh, cruise missiles with the M41 launchers. So they, they've been aware of this for some time. So, I mean, that's what you really, you know, this is where it gets to be very crazy and very dangerous. I don't, I don't frankly believe in tactical nuclear weapons. I mean, what is a tactical nuclear weapon? These bombs are bigger than Hiroshima. Yes, well, Helmut, the, late Helmut Schmidt, the late Helmut Schmidt famously said the definition of a tactical nuclear weapon is one that lands in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, they'll take out a city. Okay. Well, you know, the, the notoriously unreliable British press, in this case, the Daily Telegraph, is saying that uh, Ukraine expects to get missiles that can strike 190 miles behind Russian lines very quickly after the tanks come expect to get them from where well from the united states obviously who else has them i i think the russians will will then pull out all the stops i the, the, i think the game is coming to to a, an end point because i don't think that's going to stay slow rolling like we've seen it up to now we're much longer the russians are preparing an offensive everybody knows it it's going to be a big offensive and I think they're intending to push the Ukrainians way back. Uh, and, and hopefully, I think from the Russian point of view, they, they would like to be able to, to force a, a, a conclusion to this conflict if they can. The US has been the one holdout. I mean, the Europeans want to sort it out. I think even the Germans, I don't understand the Germans at the moment, but to the degree they're rational, uh, they want to sort it out. The French want to sort it out. The British, not so much. The other European countries absolutely want to sort it out. I listened to the Croatian president, Zoran Milosevic, uh, today. I don't know if you heard him, but he he uh, he thinks this whole thing's crazy, absolutely crazy. Uh, he said, what, the, what are the Germans doing? Do they, do they want to repeat what they tried 70 years ago? Uh, <laughs> you know, I can't believe it. And I think that this, this mood is growing. But I don't, you know, the 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 wild card, the the, the holdout, the problems, United States. The United States has, you know, has consistently refused to conduct any negotiations on solving the Ukraine mess over time. They refused to participate with the Normandy group in the agreements that led to the two Minsk agreements in 2014 and again in 2015. Uh, they have constantly said there won't be, there's not going to be any negotiations with Putin. And we're not going to talk to the Russians about this. In December 2021, when the Russians asked the United States and NATO for dipl diplomatic process to deal with Ukraine and to deal with the European security, they were uh, unilaterally rejected by the United States and by NATO. So the Russians have you know, come to the conclusion that, that, that they have a serious problem that they can only solve militarily. So is is Putin? We talked about the potential for Zelensky to be overthrown and a coup. Uh, what about Putin? I mean, we we hear that you know he's sick, he's got 
enemies. He has all these sorts of threats that uh, are that he's facing. Is that is it, what? As I mentioned at the outset, none of us knows what's true, what's not true. What? How do you how do you assess Putin's uh, position? He keeps yeah, showing, he keeps showing up for meetings, and he looks okay. Yeah, I, I think we have done everything possible to secure his position by convincing the Russian elite that mm. if Putin goes down, they will all go down with him. There will be massive asset seizures, there will be war crimes tribunals, uh, there will be no survivors. So by making this a war effectively for regime change and threatening the Russians with not just asset seizures, but also war crimes tribunals, uh, this has caused everyone to rally around Putin. If we wanted to ensure his uh, absolute leadership there, we couldn't have done it better. I, I think that's right. Um, if you look at the Russian television, which I watch a little bit of, um, I, 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 you know, I hear more aggressive talk, a lot of that, some of the crazy aggressive talk about, you know, destroying Ukraine, destroying NATO, you know, all this stuff. But you don't hear any criticism uh, at all of uh, the government, only that we need more forces, we need to fight better, that kind of thing. Uh, I don't see any sign of him being in serious trouble. That doesn't mean something might not happen to him. Good. Well, there are all these hopeful comments here that, well, he's run out of soldiers, 500,000 Russian men have left the country, and that he can't continue fighting a long grinding it out war like Stalin did because he won't have the uh, the soldiers and I guess there's the Wagner group that seems to be staffing its uh, military from the penitentiaries in in, uh, in Russia I mean how much of this is true I mean what well that's true I mean there, there's no doubt that with the Wagner group <laughs> I mean the Russians get a twofer they empty their prisons and they get the and these guys don't come back home. Cannon fire. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. dirty as dirty does. Uh, so, I mean, from their <laughs> point of view, it's not a bad deal. But uh, I don't see any sign that the Russians lack manpower. Uh, they only did a partial mobilization of about three. Well, much larger mobilizations if they want to. That they're uh, talking certainly with me much about what they ought to do, but it seems like public opinion still is fairly dug in on the narrative that uh, plucky Ukraine is is fighting the, the terrible Russians and that there's only one way to think about this is and it's in uh, defeating the Russians in war. I mean, that uh, as crazy as that sounds, I think a lot of people. Well, the Ukrainians have fought very well and very hard. Uh, and they've been, I think, from a command and control point of view, superior to the Russians uh, overall. But you know, remember that the troops they started with aren't the troops they have now. That for the most part, the first line, the first army, someone's speaking now of the third Ukrainian army because the, the first one's gone, the second one's gone, and now we're on the third one. So I mean, how much can they do? It, it's asking an awful lot. And and for what? I mean, the, the territories that, that they... Uh, they're never going to have peaceful relations in those territories, even if they took them back, unless they unless they drive the, the Russian-speaking people out of Ukraine altogether, um, because what, they're Russian-speaking areas. Yes, that, that raises the question, what were American strategic objectives in this to begin with? Certainly, there is an element of the administration personified by uh, 
Victoria Newland, that believes uh, with religious fervor that Russia is destined to be a liberal democracy and that our goal in one way or another should be regime change. Uh, I don't think everyone of the administration thinks that, but if we didn't want that, we certainly could have agreed to the Minsk II formula. This is something you wrote about Stephen Asia Times, where uh, autonomous Russian-speaking zones within a sovereign Ukraine would have satisfied Russian requirements. If we had done that, uh, Putin would have had no basis for an invasion. So we, we sandbagged that. We prevented that from happening. As you pointed out, Washington and London were against that, uh, where Paris and Berlin uh, were amenable. Uh, what did we think we were doing stumbling into this thing? Well, I think what we thought we were doing is putting NATO in Ukraine. I mean, and that's what the Russians thought they that we were doing as well. I mean, that, the, they were they you know, the Russians. Russia lost its buffer in Eastern Europe from the Baltics down to Romania. They lost their entire buffer, which was their award for winning a big part of World War II. Uh, and and they lost it. Now, you can argue about that, but the the Soviet Union collapsed. There was no reason for those countries to remain under Russian domination and they didn't want to because the quality of life wasn't what they wanted and, and the political freedoms weren't what they wanted. All that's true. But then the Russians extracted promises from us that we, we wouldn't expand NATO further and certainly not to Ukraine. And we broke those promises, uh, absolutely broke those promises. And we, we invited Ukraine to join NATO and and we made them a kind of associate member anyway, even without being voted on, so that we could begin training the Ukrainian army and moving uh, uh, equipment, especially electronics and other stuff, intelligence capabilities, all that into Ukraine over oh, seven or eight years. And the Russians said, well, what's this all about? They're gonna attack us, so we better attack them first. So that I mean, that's really what the basis of this invasion was. Russians tried a last-ditch effort to get negotiations. We refused, which only confirmed again in their minds that our intention was to turn Ukraine into a NATO uh, stronghold facing Moscow. It's quite close to Moscow, after all. Well, so, uh, yeah. let me let me jump in here. This is the Bill Walton show, and I'm here talking with uh, David Goldman and uh, Stephen Bryan about the situation in Ukraine. Uh, Russia, and it, it, we, we seem to be coming up to some point of of no return. Is there a point of no return, and what should we be doing to shape uh, public opinion in the United States to get uh, Victoria Newland uh, out of the catbird seat and somebody else in who can bring this thing to a negotiated uh, settlement? I wish I knew well, how and, you do that. <laughs> I, I think there are a number of things that can happen that will shift sentiment. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, Russia, uh, uh, an, as I mentioned before, announces in advance that it's going to destroy a uh, Ukrainian coal-fired plant, tells people to evacuate, and then drops a small nuclear weapon on it, a thousand kiloton weapon. That's the end of it. What happens in the West then? Is there an appetite for nuclear escalation with Russia? Well, no. There's no way we, we don't want a nuclear war. Uh, at that point, the West will freeze up and the Russians will have won. So 
if we push this to the point where the Russians use a so-called non-strategic nuclear weapon, that's an end game uh, which loses for us. You know, of course, we'll have permanent sanctions against Russia and permanent enmity and so forth. You're talking about hundreds of thousands of deaths. If the not Russians, yeah, not yeah, yeah, because these are oh. not small weapons. They, they, you know, these are these are megaton weapons. They're not kiloton weapons. So the Hiroshima was eleven kilotons. Not yes, they have. A, uh, they the Russians have one kiloton weapons, and I'm talking about the use so of the one of those in an area which they've already told the Ukrainians to evacuate. So it's not hundreds of thousands of deaths. Well, I, I don't want to. I really hope that that uh, Putin has more common sense than to try that scenario. Um, because I don't know what we would do. We have gravity bombs and we could start dropping them on Russian territory. I mean, the whole the whole notion of this is very, very dangerous, extremely dangerous. What we want to do is, I mean, my opinion, the end game should be to stabilize Ukraine, to, to, to get Europe back on a peaceful track, if it's possible, uh, to work out something with the Russians that makes some sense. And to stop, drop all this garbage about war crimes and all this stuff, because all that's going to lead to is trouble, and, and see if there's a way to to sort it out. Uh, that's what Minsk was supposed to do. Unfortunately, then Angela Merkel, uh, Angela Merkel, Merkel, and Macron said, "Oh well, it was all a ruse. It was all a fake. We weren't serious. We just wanted to buy time." So the Russians said, "Oh, we negotiated something in good faith, and you guys weren't operating in good faith. So we have we have." It's a very complicated problem to even get a negotiation, but we ought to be trying, but we're not. And and it seems to me that the, the, that's where the if we, if we can get public opinion to say to the White House, it's time to talk to the Russians. Maybe that's the way to go. I don't know. It's not it's not much of a plan, but it's the only plan I can think of. Well, we've been talking about the need to get them to the table for over a year now, and it doesn't, we, and it doesn't, about a year exactly. And that doesn't, so they've been doing the reverse. It's yeah. To, to dial 1 800 Putin. You know. <laughs> <laughs> David, how would you, how would you bring, how would you bring this about if you were, uh, I mean, how, how both, both if you're in the administration, which would be ideal, but if, since you're not, how, how can how can we help influence events so we don't end up with the uh, the worst case scenario? Well, I think the United States should step back and ask what our strategic interests are. Do we have a, an existential or even an important strategic interest, as I saw in the top, for Ukraine to be part of NATO? The answer is no. We do not have a compelling strategic interest in Ukraine. So to have Russophone areas remain under Russian influence, either as separate states or part of Russia or autonomous zones within a sovereign Ukraine, is not an enormous concern of ours. The difficulty we have is walking back off, uh, off the branch, because having put a gun to the head of every NATO member and demanded, uh, uh, you know, the Nibelungen Treue, so the... Uh, the expression for the German support of Austria in 1914, forced everyone to stick their neck out for us. If we say, oh, we changed our minds, then the credibility of the United States 
severely damaged. So we have a, a very unpleasant choice now of losing credibility or actually losing a war, losing something strategically, which would be even more devastating. So it's very difficult to walk back. The best we could get now is to say, look, nobody, this isn't getting anywhere. Just have a ceasefire. North Korea, South Korea kind of ceasefire, and then let's negotiate it. Let everything settle down for a year or two, and then eventually iterate back to Minsk too, because the American public, as we know from Afghanistan and Iraq and so forth, has a very short memory about these things. And if you let it sit in place for a year, then you can probably, after that interval, negotiate something sensible. So if we so just stop... Would, I'm sorry, go ahead. Immediate, just cease fire in place. Tell everyone to stop shooting and start negotiating. It took five years for Kissinger to negotiate the uh, surrender of South Vietnam, which is effectively what he did. Uh, let them argue for a year about the shape of the table. Just stop the shooting. Stephen? Well, it depends a little bit on the, the military situation. Uh, Russians are making gains now, as I pointed out earlier. It won't be easy an easy task to convince the Russians to stop. However, and the big however is that the Russians firmly believe that the only negotiation is with Washington. They don't, they don't believe there's any negotiation with Europe because they consider it toothless. And they don't believe there's any negotiation with Zelensky because they hate him and he hates them. So there's no grounds for talking. So the only thing the Russians say is, well, if, if Washington wants to really negotiate, let's see. Uh, but Washington has said no. So anyway, I, maybe the ceasefire idea works if Washington leads like a Kissinger style, except we don't have a Kissinger, uh, leads the effort and, and appoints someone with real gravitas and seriousness and, and, and who can stand up to any fakery or any, any uh, misleading. The, Ru the Russians won't be misled this time. I think they, they felt like they'd been sold the, the do, the do the politics change now that we've got a House controlled slightly by Republicans? Because there's a, you know, we've, we've shipped $100 billion, who's counting, who knows where it went to Ukraine, and we've shipped a lot of uh, weapons. And at some point, our, our and you would know this, Stephen. At some point, our cupboard runs bare of, of stuff. Yeah, we it has run bare already. And so it seems like we've run out our strategic string here, where there's not a whole lot the United States can do to keep this going. I mean, had we not shipped all that, it it would have ended uh, with a with a Russian takeover of portions of of uh, of the country, probably seven or eight months ago. So, but that didn't happen. At what point do you think if we just said we're cutting off the purse, we're not funding this, and and then uh, see how it plays out? Is that is that a scenario that could work? No, I, I, I think that, that that would be tricky. I mean, I think the more logical thing would be to try and open a negotiation with the Russians openly, publicly, and say, look, it's time to try and find an answer and ask the Russians to stop if they can, but they have to get the Ukrainians to stop as well. And I'm not sure they would. Uh, Zelensky is uh, hard over about pursuing the war there. Yes, well, if you stop shipping them weapons, they'll have to. Well, that may help, yeah. But and 
you know, his burn rate, his burn rate on weapons is uh, staggering. Yes, and we have lots of precedents for dealing with people like Zelensky. I'm thinking, for example, of Diem. Well, he, he disappeared and he died. Uh, tragically, yes. <laughs> in a church, if I remember right. Uh, in Saigon. Yes. But yeah, I mean, look, we have ways to deal with that. But I think that that, that Zelensky has has managed to cajole the Europeans and the United States 100 percent. Right. Yeah, he's he's driving this to the extent he's driving it. He's driving. it, But it's because he has Washington. So if he doesn't have Washington, then he then he then he has a, a whole different situation for himself and for his government. It's a very suppressive government in Ukraine. It's arrested all its opposition. Now it's arresting uh, uh, Russian Orthodox priests and uh, that kind of thing. It's, uh, it's got snipers out trying to shoot Russian Orthodox chaplains. It's actually assassinating them in, the, in, in battle areas. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on here. It's pretty lousy. Um, and I mean, that has to be stopped. Well, let me, let me, we need to wrap this up, but it seems to me that time seems to be based on what you all are saying is time seems to be on Russia's side, not ours. And as this drags on, they, they end up sort of doing what Russia's always done, kind of winning with, with time and inertia and, and just massive numbers of people to, to flood the zone. That's kind of what Bill Milley has told us. I mean, he's, you know, he's, He's reading the intel. I don't have the intelligence. He has it. Uh, it seems like he's getting at least reasonably uh, solid information that the war is starting to turn against Ukraine. I think that's the uh, most likely scenario. I think the great risk is that uh, the real fanatics, like the British, for example, who are the biggest lobby for giving the Ukrainians long-range weapons, will do things that widen the war and then it becomes unpredictable and extremely dangerous. So in the interim, best idea is let's make Milley secretary of state and give him the mandate to negotiate. You know, that wouldn't be a bad idea at all. I mean, Milley, is, uh, Milley would be respected by the Russian side. Um, Rasmov would respect him. Putin it it respect nice, him. and I, I'm not, I'm not in, I'm not in this world that you are. But, I, but it'd be nice to have a grown-up in the in the room. And we, we've got our rock musician, state uh, secretary of state. I'm, <laughs> I'm unimpressed. Uh, and he, the more he performs in the job, the less impressed I get. Yeah. Um, well, the Russians what won't an take interesting the idea. Vikings that case. that would be. Of course, Biden has changed exactly zero cabinet appointments in the two years he's been there. That's okay. He probably doesn't remember them. <laughs> but, I mean, but, but taking David's point, I mean, all that, all that uh, Millie would have to do is call his counterpart and say, "Let's meet in wherever," and, and really have a serious conversation, or even fly to Moscow. It's not closed. He could go there. Yeah, we sold that would be the right gesture. I mean, I was I was involved very much when Sadat flew to Jerusalem. I mean, it's it's in the doable. Okay. Well, he and, called the Chinese, didn't he? To he certainly did, and he told the Chinese not to be alarmed. Yeah. So I mean, whether that was right or wrong, I don't know. But I mean, yeah, it's, he's clearly a heavy player, and he's about the only heavy player in the administration that exists at the moment, and he seems realistic. 
uh, and he's not wedded to the war one way or the other. And it seems to me he's not invested. So from the Russian point of view, he's a professional. He's he's the commander in chief of the you know the U.S. military. From their point of view, uh, he's the big guy. And if he opened the door, and there have been conversations, has not been totally silent. But if he actually made a big move with administration support, it might work. Stephen, David, thank you. Um, Bill, thank you very much. Thank yeah, you. This has been sorry, I hope we haven't ruined your day. Stephen, Stephen, Brian, and I'm sorry, Stephen, what did you say? <laughs> I said, I hope we haven't ruined your day. Well, you have. <laughs> <laughs> but I found one. I, I never thought Mark Milley was my guy, but you're making me think maybe he is. Uh, we need to find somebody there as a grown-up, and and maybe maybe that's it. Maybe we ought to start start uh, pushing him into the job. Anyway, thanks thanks a lot, uh, and uh, we'll be back. Uh, this has been the Bill Walton Show, and uh, as, as usual, you can find us on all the major podcast platforms: Substack, Rumble, uh, YouTube. Uh, we're also on the CPAC now channel on Monday nights. And uh, stay tuned. I'm sure, given the nature of this conflict, we'll be back and. Love to get David Goldman and uh, Stephen Bryan back as, as as events develop. So, anyway, thanks guys, and thanks all for uh, for listening. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over a hundred episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining. <laughs>